Hi, and welcome to Adopted Feels, a podcast about anything and everything adoption related. On this podcast, we've mainly interviewed friends and friends of friends. Unfortunately, sliding into Joel Kim Booster's DMs didn't work, but if anyone out there can hook us up, please do. But recently, Korean adoptee Ben Kaplan contacted us out of the blue to offer his story, thus becoming the first completely random person guest on Adopted Feels. It would be his first interview, so he apologized in advance in case he was a noob, which means newbie, FYI, for those of you like us who are uninitiated with gamer culture. He was technically new to podcasting, but he definitely wasn't a noob. Ben was an incredibly warm, reflective, and generous guest. This is an in-depth and far-reaching convo about identity and self-exploration. We start with Ben's time in Seoul, immersed in the underground art scene and doing it rough in a converted machine shop in Mule, before reaching what he calls rock bottom. Ben then returned to the U.S. just as the global financial crisis hit where he shelved a lot of the questions that Korea had raised until the recent anti-Asian hate crimes in the U.S. reawakened feelings that had laid dormant for years. We also talk about the three phases of Ben's ongoing identity search, how he's come to see being adopted as a superpower rather than as a disadvantage, why he has recently started to think about changing his name, becoming the mentor he never had, and much more. We always say this, but this was one of our favorite interviews on the podcast. Benjamin Kaplan is a Korean-American adoptee currently living in Portland, Oregon. He lived in Korea for three years back in the late 2000s, and during that time created a website focusing on the underground art scene in Seoul called The Native Gaze. He now works as a design director of brand experience at Nike, and his projects are super cool as we discovered in our research. His wife Erin is also adopted domestically within the U.S., and after adopting their dog Poncho last year, they now have a true, quote-unquote, family of adoptees. Check out Ben's work at www.bvkaplan.com and lots of cute dog content on Instagram at bvkaplan. And finally, thank you so much to our newest patron, Mother Maid. It means the world to us to have your support. Uh, thanks for getting in touch, Ben. Um, it's so, so nice to connect with you. Uh, so you're, you're an artist currently living in Portland, working as a design director, global brand experience at Nike, but have previously moved around a ton within the U.S., but you also spent three years living in Seoul um, in the late 2000s. Perhaps we'll start with your three years in Korea. Sure. Thanks for having me also. This is, this is my first podcast, so if I I'm screwing up. That's why. <laughs> um, yeah. So I guess, yeah, that time around 2007, 2008, I had originally uh, gone there to study abroad uh, during my last year of college at Yonsei University, uh, which I think is a program that a lot of uh, adoptees end up going through. It's like a nice way to introduce yourself to Korea in a kind of safe place. And you have a program and you get to learn the language a little bit and learn Korean culture. So uh, that was my first exposure, uh, which was awesome. Um, and I met a ton of uh, Korean American friends, Korean friends, other, uh, I think I met a couple of other adoptees at that time, but I wasn't super plugged in uh, to the community. Um, so yeah, that was my first, my first kind of phase. And then I just basically kept extending <laughs> my time, I think as a lot of adoptees too, once you kind of fall in love with that experience, you're just kind of like, 
how can I get more, you know? Um, so I ended up like delaying my graduation from school and I stayed and I lived in the little Hasu and I was just working at a random company for a while, doing a little bit of teaching um, and basically just like living there as long as I could afford to live there. Um, so that was my first phase. Then unfortunately I had to go back to graduate and just do my last semester because I was like, okay, I have to graduate college now. <laughs> Uh, so I went back and did that. And then in that last semester, I was fortunate enough to be able to apply to the Fulbright uh, program. And I kind of squeezed in there, even though I was graduating, and they awarded me uh, a grant to come back, uh, paid for for a whole year. So that was like, super big opportunity. Um, and I basically took that. And that's how I got <clears throat> back to Korea to finish out uh, the three years there. So my Fulbright project, um, it was kind of, I was trying to be different. I think I was like trying to be a little bit more like uh, artsy and like a little bit rebellious because most people that are on that scholarship do more traditional research and they're just like doing a paper and they're kind of more in the academic field. But my proposal was actually to build uh, a super scrappy DIY website that would be covering underground art in Seoul. Wow. Uh, and I mm. basically was thinking that when I was in Philadelphia, which is where I lived at the time, it's like, that was kind of like early internet days, I guess, too. And it was like, there was no real way to know what was going on in Seoul in terms of art. You know, there just wasn't a way to access that stuff. So my, my thesis was like, okay, I could, I could kind of be that bridge and like make a little bit of a window so people could see what was going on in the art scene. Uh, so that was my project uh, that I started. It was called The Native Gaze <laughs> was the name of the website. And, I, and I, I kind of was like, I made a whole branding thing and I tried to make it like cool and kind of position it like adjacent to kind of streetwear and that kind of kind of scene. I had, I made stencils and I was like stenciling shit in Hongdae and like in the <laughs> alleys and stuff. So it was, it was super fun. Uh, so that, that basically, that project, uh, kind of finished out my time. I extended a little bit longer after the money ran out from the Fulbright. And that's when I was uh, dedicating myself to kind of painting. Uh, and I was trying to be an artist. Uh, and then that took me to the end of my time when I when I finally came back. So wow. that's a quick summary of the three years. Amazing. I'm just curious, um, like if it was difficult to navigate the art scene like as a an english-speaking foreigner or i don't know i'm just curious about like the practicalities of that yeah to i mean yes it was definitely <laughs> difficult <laughs> i mean i can, looking back it's so funny that i was like so young and ambitious that i felt that i could do that you know like i think even now it's like oh that seems like such a daunting task but i literally yeah i, I um I got a little room in Hongdae because I knew that like at that, you know, in the past, at least Hongdae was like the place for artists and stuff, you know? So I was like, okay, I have to live there, which was a step away from what the other Fulbright people were doing because Fulbright actually had like a building that you could live in that was almost like a dorm. Mm -hmm. And I remember that was like a big thing in my mindset. I was like, I'm not doing that. You know, like I'm, I'm going out on my own. I'm going to like do this my own way. So Basically, just from living in Hongdae, I would just like walk around and like go like I, I would just find all the galleries and then I would just look for flyers, you know, like they would like staple up all sorts of posters because, you know, that's was the vibe back then. I think it probably still is now. And I just look for stuff and I just go to as many um, 
openings as possible. And I would just take pictures and I would try to meet people if I could. But yeah, it was, it wasn't easy, but it was also like smaller back then I feel. So Mm. once I did meet a couple of people that were in kind of a scene that kind of helped me a lot because then that kind of like opened up the doors and they would invite me to things. So the two groups that I met, one of, one of them was called, they were called themselves microwave collective Mm -hmm. and they were like a conceptual art group. And I distinctly remember the first event that I went to with them, it was like this gorilla block party thing um, where they were, you know, those like pedestrian overpasses in Seoul. They're like, the, they take you over the street. They're like a little mm-hmm. you know, concrete step thing. They decided to paint one of those things like neon orange, like as part of an art thing. And then they had a performance on top of the bridge. <laughs> so you can imagine this is like 2007, like, like people are walking by like, what the hell are these people doing? There's people doing like interpretive dances and stuff on top of the, um, on top of the bridge. So when I saw that, I was like, holy shit, like, this is cool. You know, like this is, I want to be a part of this. So I ended up meeting those guys. Um, and they kind of kept inviting me, uh, to things. Uh, and the other group I met, uh, are these, this group of, uh, female artists and they, they were running a zine called chill zine. Uh, and it was three women. Uh, and I met them probably at one of their openings, I think, because they, they were all painting and they were, they all went to Hongdae and they were graduating. Um, and I ended up just getting like getting really tight with them and becoming like just friends. So like they would definitely like show me uh, where stuff was and they'd like drag me along to different things. So those two groups really like opened up the world for me. And if I hadn't have met them, I would have been not able to get as deeply embedded, I think, as I ended up being. For you, like just being in Korea, do you think that um, was like quite creatively stimulating for your own art practice? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think visually, especially when you're like, I remember walking down the street and like, I'm sure you guys probably feel this too. It's like really visually, it's very interesting when you're first there because you're like walking down these huge busy streets and you're kind of like visually, I blend in for the first time in my life. But auditorily you're also like you would hear you would your brain would focus on like if a white guy walked by and he was talking talking about something you would hear that you know what i mean and all the other noise kind of like fades to the background so i think that was an interesting dynamic about being there just in general but i think yes visually for my visual art i think my original avenue into painting was actually like typography and signage because i you know signs and stuff were like such a big visual marker of being in soul and literally, I have photos of this. Like, I, w- I didn't even know what I was doing. I was like, I just want to paint. Like, I want to be an artist. I want to do something. So I just started painting, like, these signs on pieces of cardboard that were just, like, different words or different phrases. Like, I would just copy signs, basically, you know? And that was just a way for me to start putting paint on something. You know, that's what all, a lot of artists talk about that. Like, just get the paint on the paper, and then you'll go from there. And that was my yeah. first step was basically mimicking like, cause I was interested in typography and just the way that it looked. I think I have a background in architecture. I had a background at that point. So Korean letters and stuff and learning about the language and the way they move around and interact with each other is a very geometric uh, and kind of, I think it's kind of like an architectural language in a way. So I think mm-hmm. those two things coming together that ended up becoming like my art later on. Um, 
so yeah, definitely had a huge, I wouldn't have done all those paintings that I ended up making if I was like sitting in Philadelphia somewhere, you know what I mean? Like I, I just wouldn't have been that inspired to do that. Mm. I want to ask a, um, a kind of a side question. I don't want to derail us too much, but like I remember moving to Australia from Korea and realizing that I really lived in in kind of like that linguistic bubble because I couldn't really understand Korean and my understanding of Chinese is really limited. And before Korea, I lived in Taipei. And um, I realized that I'd kind of become quite used to that and quite habituated into that. And when I moved to Australia and I could understand pretty much what 90% of people were saying, I found it like a really full-on sensory experience. It almost felt kind of invasive, like... You know, um, and I'm wondering what it was like for you to return to the States after after that period of immersion in Korea. Yeah, and I definitely understand uh, what you're talking about. It's like it's like those moments when you're at a restaurant and like you want to be focusing on like the people that you're with, but you like can't help but overhear like this obnoxious person like next to you. It's like those are the moments that you have, you know, when you're, your language fluent, but then it's like, you never have that. If you're, if you're in a place where you don't understand, it's like a blur. Um, but I don't really quite remember, to be honest, Ryan, like, I don't think I have a lot of like specific memories about coming back, but I definitely know it's, it's a shock. You know, it, fe it feels good, you know, to be perfectly honest. Like, it's like, it's not like anything to be embarrassed about. It's like, that's where this is, that's where we grew up. Like we're, like I'm an English speaker. I'll always be an English speaker. I'm an American. And so like, obviously I'm going to feel a sense of comfort when I'm back in a place where it's like, everything is geared towards me now. Great. Like that's easy. Like I love that, you know, <laughs> but it does, it does put things into perspective. And I, you know, I think it's one thing that's unique about like, you know, adoptees and people like ourselves who have chosen to like live other places. It's like, I really encourage that to like other non-adoptee, just like American people that are like, Oh, I've only lived here. You know, I'm really, you know, it's like, it's such a challenge and it's such a, it's such an eye opening thing to like implant yourself in a place where, where you, where you haven't grown up, you know? And it's just a feeling that a lot of Western people like never have to confront uh, because the whole world is kind of built to make them feel comfortable. You know what I mean? <laughs> so it's like, uh, it's, it's good to, it's, I think it's good for everyone to feel that at some point and to experience it. Um, maybe that's uh, like a little seg into your experience living in Mule in Seoul before it was cool. Um, <laughs> so we get the sense that like you almost, like you made a challenging experience, like, even harder, perhaps. Can you like tell us about that time? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I think I mentioned this earlier about how I like when I got there on the Fulbright. I was like, I'm not going to live in the dorm. Like that's too easy. Like I think I had that like very rebellious and and a little bit, frankly, like ignorant attitude of like I can do this on my own. And it's almost like this myth of I think maybe this is an American thing, but like individual exceptionalism, you know, like I felt like I knew there was other adoptees out there, but in that moment I was like, I'm doing this thing and this is important because this is my path and I'm learning about my culture and I'm going to do it my way. And so I didn't really reach out to a lot of other people in the adoptee community until the very end of my time there, which was great. And I'm glad I ended up doing that. But I wonder if there, you know, looking back, I do wonder if there's like this little element of like, 
yeah, trying to make it difficult for myself, but like, like almost like punishing myself or something. I know that sounds like really creepy, but it's like, it's like wanting to go through something really hard, you know? And like, and, and I don't think any of this was conscious because I wasn't consciously doing this, but looking back, it's like, you know, like the hero's journey when they're like going, they're sailing off on this ship into the unknown. And it's like, there's all these like storms and creatures that are trying to attack you. And it's like, I think I was trying to do that. You know what I mean? I was trying to have that journey of like me succeeding in the face of all odds, you know? And I think the unfortunate thing is that's just a myth because no one can do that. And that's too much pressure to put on yourself. (laughs) So it's not like I won the battle and like, you know, I don't even know what winning would have been, but I think in my mind at the time, I thought winning was like, I'm going to fully assimilate into Korean society i'm going to learn korean and be fluent i'm going to like be this like cultural bridge between korea and america and i'm going to be like super great doing that you know and i didn't do that (laughs) you know but it's like i think in my mind that's what i had kind of set out or set the goal onto myself to do and that was just completely unrealistic (laughs) and you're also living in a converted um shop front <laughs> yeah no i can get in yeah i can get into more of the details of like <laughs> the challenges for sure yeah so me and my friend vincent who was actually i met through the microwave collective he was an artist at the time um i can't even remember how this happened but i was living in hongdae and i think he was you know what if we like got a studio and like made like an artist studio because we both wanted to paint so that was kind of like hey we could get a space And then I'm not really sure how it went to like, oh, we could live at the space too. But it eventually, you know, he found it, you know, and credit to him for like getting in the weeds and finding that stuff. And we went and looked at this place and it was like, you know, Mule is like all these, like, it's like these tiny little alleys. And then there's like these like bunch of like little uh, flats, like next to each other. And they were all like rectangular they had like sliding front doors and on the doors would have all of the services, you know, and mostly it was like welding machine shops. Like I can make this part for you. And so this one shop was like going out of business or they were moving or something. So we went and looked at it. And I mean, I honestly don't know what was going through my mind at the time to be like, yes, this looks great. <laughs> like let's live there. Because when we looked at it, it was like, covered in oil there's like machines it smelled like you know welding and metal shards and and so yeah we just decided we're like yeah let's do this let's 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 like live the the artist life that we keep talking about i think he also kind of had that myth of like being a being an artist and what that means in his own mind so i think both of us together were like uh kind of like bad news in that respect (laughs) so yeah we moved in and it's literally, it was like a concrete box. Uh, there was like a little um, drain in the corner. And then there was a loft area um, in the back that was like a ladder, like wood ladder that you climbed up and there was like a little room up there. So that little room became my bedroom. And then Vincent's bedroom was like right below mine. And then he hired like a friend of his dad's or something who was like this construction worker dude. And he came and like helped us like, we hooked up like a water heater, uh, like this like water jug that would like sit on the wall. We like hooked that up. And then he brought in these like kind of wall panels that were like, uh, they're like 
insulated panels. So they have like uh, styrofoam in the middle and they have like metal on the outside. So we like made some walls for Vincent's bedroom. Uh, and then that was it. <laughs> and so it was like super crappy, like, you know, we maybe have to edit this out, but like we peed in this hole in the ground, you know, like there's this like hole in the ground. So that's where we peed and we showered there too. And mo- like when we had to use the real bathroom, we'd have to go across the street uh, to the home plus and use their bathroom. And then I would take like deep showers, like once a week at the, at the sauna, like down the street and then talk about like traumatic story. Okay. So I'll just share another super traumatic story. So, so I'm living in the warehouse. I was like sick. I got like, I ate something, you know, I was like sick to my stomach. And so, you know, when that happens, like you don't really have a lot of time. So (laughs) there was like a, there was like a nodebang, like right down, like really close, like to the place that I was living. And it's one of those things, you know, in Korea, it's like, there's like a three or four stories of like businesses and, and shit in there, but the front door is like open and you can like walk right into the front door and there's like a stairway, you know what I mean? And there was a bat, like an open bathroom in, in the hall. And I, I knew that that bathroom was there. So I was like, okay, I just got to, I'm just going to use this bathroom. So I went, I used the bathroom. Then I went, I like snuck back out and I went back to my apartment, but then I was like getting more sick like this whole time. So I ended up having to like go back like two or three times and I was just like really sick. And then the, one of the last times I went out of the bathroom and I'm like walking out the door to go back to my house, like the Ajishi from the Nodebang like came out and was like, started yelling at me in Korean. He was like, what the fuck are you doing? And you're like, what are you like? Why are you using my bath? Like you're, sh-. he was, I think he was saying like, you're shitting in my bathroom. <sighs> and I was just like traumatized, you know? And I was like, and also it's like the language thing too. So I couldn't, you know, I basically was like, sorry, like I'm a foreigner. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. Like, I, I just like, was like, just, you know, bowing and like, just saying, I'm really sorry. But, yeah. you know, I was like mortified after that. And it, it's, that, that was just like a super hard situation because of, on many levels of like, Hey, I don't, I'm living in a place that doesn't have a bathroom. I made the mistake of using someone else's bathroom. And then it's like, I got yelled at and I couldn't even defend myself because of the language. You know what I mean? So I think that's the type of stuff that we deal with when like, you know, when we go back and choose to live in that environment. And I think you guys have talked about it a lot on this podcast with various people, but it's just like, people don't understand how like the littlest things can just turn into these like huge issues and like triggering events for us because our existence there is so fragile in a way you know what i mean it's like everything is like confronting us at all times so you never know (laughs) when that's going to come up um so yeah that was a low point for sure and um yeah so don't (laughs) i don't know if my advice would be to to do what i did um but i will say and I, i told you guys this the other night um i am proud a little bit because i went back i've been back a few times since then and now muledong is like this art area it's like an artist area. It's like all those former machine shops that uh, Vincent and I were living next to at the time, those are all converted now into cafes, artist studios. And it's, I mean, it's basically gentrified, right? Like it's gentrification, but we were definitely one of the first people there, <laughs> you know? So it's, it's kind of like cool to have pioneered that little slice of, of culture and soul. Um, so yeah, I think it's, it's, it's pretty cool. 
as you were talking, um, I was <laughs> kind of reminded of um, that memoir called Wild by Cheryl Strayed where she, <laughs> she hikes the Pacific Crest Trail. <laughs> That's a Reese Witherspoon movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So the so I recently read the book that um yeah and um you know so yeah she puts herself through this like like she's wholly unprepared and um yeah and it's like quite traumatic at times and it's like this just huge test of like survival and uh, strength and um like physical and emotional and anyway so <laughs> I was just kind of reminded of that and. I mean, do you think ultimately, like you said that you feel like the the kind of um, hero's journey, in a sense, it felt like a myth to you, like when you you were actually like in the the, the reality of this um, this experience. But I mean, do you think looking back now, um, how do you think that this whole experience changed you? I mean, I'm that's quite a big question, but. Like if if you were writing your your memoir of of that time, like what what would be the conclusion <laughs> of that time? It's interesting because I think I described it to you guys as like rock bottom, you know, when I left, and I I really felt like I don't even remember how I made the decision to actually leave, but I don't think it was one of those things where. I was casually like, oh, yeah, you know, I think like I'm going to go home and because of this, this and this and I'm going to get this other job. It was like I had to leave, you know, like I, I, it was like that feeling of like I am at my wits end and this is not healthy for me to live here anymore, you know, and I have to like there was some, you know, sane aspect somewhere in my brain that was like, dude, you got to get out of here. You know what I mean? You're not going to be the hero by just forcing yourself to go through all this trauma, you know, all the time. Um, and I think it, it literally, it was like an escape. I escaped. That's, I think that would be the end of the memoir. It's like I escaped uh, back to, to my home, you know, to America, you know, and, and then it was just a matter of time to heal and to, now be able to kind of move on and look back on that time. It's, it's quite interesting. And, and it's, you know, I'm glad that I can talk about it now and like reflect on it and share that part of my journey now, you know, with other people, because I think my example is just quite extreme <laughs> for, for many, you know, in many respects, I guess, you know, if that was the end of the memoir, the first step in kind of the next chapter or the memoir part two, I think, was actually so random that like I could have never predicted what was going to happen. So basically I got back and I was living at my mom's house uh, in New Hampshire and this was 2008, fall 2008. So it was literally right, uh, right when the financial uh, crisis happened uh, is when I moved back. So in the beginning I was kind of like, okay, I'm going to take like a month off and just chill. And then I'm going to start like applying for jobs, you know, because I was like, okay, like I know I don't want to live with my mom. Like I got to like find a job. And then right when I was doing all that, the crisis happened. So obviously no one's hiring. Mm. And I actually had gotten a job offer at, at the old company I used to work with in Philadelphia. And like during the time of the offer to like when I was supposed to move, the financial thing happened and they ended up having to rescind the job offer because they were like, holy shit, like we can't, 
you know, all of our clients are drying up. We can't, we can't afford to, to bring you down here. So that was, that was definitely tough. Um, but anyway, what I'm getting at is what I ended up doing is volunteering at this organization called uh, Worldwide Organization of Organic Farmers, oh, which you- is this network of like farm, farm internships. Mm-hmm. I don't even know how I like figure that out, but I just was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to farm now. <laughs> so I applied and I, um, I got accepted at this farm that's ironically in Oregon, like an hour South of where I live now, uh, in this little town called Dallas. And, um, I ended up living there for the next year. So that is like, so funny to me because it's like coming from this crazy kind of traumatic experience living in Seoul, you know, like mega city, you know, I was living in that warehouse fast forward, like three, four months, like I'm in rural Oregon living in a trailer and the only people I see every day are like the two farmers and their dog and their animals. So it's like the polar opposite, like type of experience, but slowly through that year of being on the farm, that was like my healing time. You know what I mean? Like, I think Mm. that's when I like kind of put myself back together in a way. And it was, it was only just, I think through the simplicity of the life I was just working with my hands, like just doing farm stuff, eating really good food. I didn't have any friends or anything. You know, I was like living this like super like, like monkish existence where I would just like work and go to my trailer and like read books. Um, So somehow through that whole process, I think I got myself like back on my feet, you know, but it's interesting to think about like, if I had not done that and just like, gotten a job and like gone on with my normal life. I, I don't know. I wonder if that would have been difficult, you know, not having the time to like fully heal in a way, you know? Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. It's, it's we wild, have a right? lot of <laughs> woofers in Australia actually. Yeah. That's, that's what you. Yes. Yeah. Woofing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's probably smart. You know, I think, Cause like a lot of people, um, you know, if you just kind of go straight into like one experience to the next and, um, you know, just throw yourself into work or projects or whatever it is, then yeah. Then you often like delay processing these like big experiences. Right. Yeah. And I'd actually don't even think when I was on the farm, I was thinking a lot about Korea per se, you know, I think I was just I think I was like not thinking about it in a way, you know what I mean? I was just like thinking about what I was doing and not worrying too much about that stuff. And I think, I think that's part of the healing, you know, like I didn't even have internet there. I had, I I would uh, ride my bike into the town once a week to go to like a little coffee shop where they had Wi-Fi, and I'd like check my email like once a week. So I was, it was like a very like unplugged um, existence, but yeah. Well, we might move on to um, talking about your, like, ongoing identity search. You've mentioned to us that um, you feel like there have been, like, three main phases. Um, Could you talk us through those again? Yeah, so I feel like phase one was basically, like, I'm a child. (laughs) And I think my relationship with Korea was basically through my parents, you know, like my white parents, like any type of like Korean book or culture camp. And 
the example that's been going through my mind is I distinctly remember doing like school projects, you know, when I was like in sixth grade, I remember building like a little diorama about like ancient Korean like houses and stuff like a little mud hut. And I had some people in there and it was, you know, it was about a his- the history of Korea. And so I remember like I would do those things and it would be like, yeah, this is cool. Cause I'm Korean and I'm doing this uh, in school, but I don't think I really, I was too young to like associate that with like my identity, you know? And I think that that phase lasted up until I probably uh, went there to Yonsei for study abroad. You know, I was just like, I'm, yes, I'm Korean, but I'm, it's not really connected to like who I am in my day-to-day life. You know, I was fortunate enough to get to go back to Seoul for the first time when I was like 12, like 11 or 12. I think I told you guys this the other night, we did like the whole motherland tour thing, which was awesome. Like I'm happy that my mom did that for us, but the whole, the whole trip, I was just obsessed with like these two other kids that were on the trip and we were just friends and we were like, Oh my God, we have new friends. And we were just like hung out the whole time. And that's all, that's all that we did. Like we didn't really care about all this stuff we were seeing. We were just like, yeah, we want to hang out and talk on the bus, you know? (laughs) So that's like a good example. I think of like, that was like my mentality at phase one, you know? And then phase two is basically like what I just, what I've just described to you guys, like the three years uh, living in Korea and like diving headfirst into that and all of the ups and downs, like the honeymoon phase in the beginning where you're just like so obsessed and you just want to learn more and it's like really enriching and awesome. And then into like the self-torture phase <laughs> where you're like, you know, get, doing all the hard stuff and then like the escape at the end. So yeah, that's, that's phase two. when I was like really like confronting things for the first time head on. But I think, you know, that was a huge, huge growth period in my life so i I wouldn't i wouldn't change that uh phase two for the world Mm -hmm. and now i think it's interesting because phase three i think has actually started quite recently like and that's part of why i reached out to you guys to kind of do this podcast is um i think after phase two i i was so so burnt out and so needing a break that i literally did take a break uh, from thinking a lot about that stuff for a while, for like, I mean, like years, like probably like 10 years, maybe actually. Mm -hmm. And I would still like, you know, it was just kind of reverting back to that, like just living your life in America, you know, and I was kind of focused on after the farm, I was just focused on like figuring out my next step. And I did a crazy amount of random jobs and I moved all over the country trying to figure out what I want to do. So that was like more of my focus at that time was like career um, and just building my life friends, like, you know, just, just normal stuff. Like I just wasn't thinking about like, okay, what am I, what am how is my adoption related to this like friend group I have? Like I just wasn't thinking about that. Um, so now that's kind of a gap time. And now I think phase three is like actually been definitely prompted by like everything that's been going on in America uh, in the past, like six months, past year, I guess, like all the way since last summer. But I think what really started me on this new phase was like, you know, the Atlanta shootings and uh, um, all of the conversations um, that have been going on about anti-Asian hate. And like, I think it's, it's confronting me in a different way. Like I think phase two is like confronting me with like Korea. And I was like, okay, how do I relate to Korea? Now I'm kind of like 
I kind of did that a little bit, you know, and I'm like, okay, I'm obviously never going to be Korean. Like, cool, check, I'm American. But I still like have done that phase two part of my journey. Now it's getting, a, it's different. Like phase three is like, okay, what does it mean to be an Asian American? And it's like, where do I fit into that? And how is my identity shaped by that? Which is not something I've really thought about, to be perfectly honest. You know, it's like you, I felt disconnected from that community in a similar way. I'm sure some adoptees do in terms of just like, yeah, we look the same and, but we're not, we don't share the same upbringing. You know what I mean? So I always felt a little bit like, yeah, I'm part of the Asian American community, but I'm kind of like a little bit of a weirdo. You know what I mean? And, I, and like, I have a bunch of, you know, Asian American friends. I met a ton of them when I lived in Seoul. And yeah, we were like really great friends. You know what I mean? But it's like, you can't really look at the way that I was brought up and the way that they were brought up and have that be like, oh yeah, that's the same, you know, because <laughs> it's not. Um, so now phase three, I think I'm just just trying to figure out like, yeah, where where do I fit in and how can I you know, share my voice a little bit more than I have in the past. And I think the thing that's been the biggest mind shift I think I've had in the last three months is that I always used to feel like being adopted, I think was a little bit of a little bit of like a disability in a way, you know, it's like always something that we needed to overcome. And even like the word adoptee, you know, to be perfectly honest, like I don't like, um, because the English connotation of like the two E's at the end, it, it's almost like it's in the context. I'm trying to think of other words that end with the two E's. It's like refugee, trainee. It's like, mm-hmm. it has a connotation of someone that needs to be helped or like someone that um, is not fully in charge. You know what I mean? Um, so I wish there was a better word because I've always felt like that. Like, it's not something I'm going to come right out and be like, Hey, my name is Ben. I'm an adoptee. Like, yeah, that's the first thing I want to talk about, you know, but now I'm changing course a little bit, or I like, I think my mindset has shifted in a, in a good way, which is cool. Cause now I'm like, I'm like, Hey, maybe, maybe being like a transracial adoptee actually is like a superpower, you know? And it kind of like gives you, uh, more of a, an ability to speak on some of these issues, especially in America, we have all these different nuanced issues around race uh, and identity in America. And it's like, instead of being like the quietest voice and like someone that's like way off to the corner and is afraid to talk, it's like, I'm just feeling more like, hey, my story is relevant to a lot of other people. And my positioning within society is like so unique. So like, our voices should be valued for more than just sharing like like yeah i'm a korean adoptee but it's like being transracial being raised in a uh, culture that you were not born into and being in our bodies in a white dominated society like that is just an experience that most people don't have you know so i think it's like trying to think of it as a as something good you know and as something powerful um is kind of where I'm headed. I'm not there yet. You know, this is the beginning of this journey, but like, those are the kind of thoughts that are running through uh, my mind. You know, and I've been obsessed with this idea of like, you can Google, there's an article on Wikipedia. It's like list of superheroes that were adopted. And it's like pretty much all superheroes. You know what I mean? Like, like Superman, Batman, like you just go down the list. It's like every, every one of those stories tends to start with like someone that's like lost their family and gets adopted into a new space 
and and they're the hero basically so i'm kind of trying to use that as like motivation to just be like yeah we're fucking badass and like you, you shouldn't like you shouldn't shy away from uh you know putting yourself out there so that's kind of why that's where i'm at now and kind of just trying to figure out like what that means like for my life you know but those are the those are the things that are going through my through my head recently i think um i, I don't know just on a personal level i re- i relate to um i i feel like i have more strongly claimed an identity as like um an Asian Australian also in the last, let's say, year or so. Um, And I think, like, I've been emboldened by all of the other, like, Asian Australians and Asian American voices that are um, speaking out right now. Yeah, and it's, like, it's, I think it's also, like, for the first time, it's, like, when those voices speak out in this context of standing up against anti-Asian racism, I think it's like feeling more like that applies to me. You know what I mean? And that sounds like really crazy probably, but I think a lot of adoptees have that experience of like, yeah, this doesn't really apply to me because I grew up in a like white, basically, you know, like I'm basically white. So I've had all the privileges that, that, uh, you know, gives you just by nature of like your family and stuff. Um, but now I've, I've, I think I've changed my mind, you know, and I think one thing that is a really (laughs) kind of like graphic example, but has been in my head is, is actually one of, I think it was Adam uh, that was on your guys' podcast was talking about um, Vincent Chin being adopted. And I was doing some more reading about that. And I never knew that either. I knew, I knew that story, but I didn't know he was adopted. That got me thinking of like, okay, yes, some people may tell you, Oh, you grew up white. Doesn't matter. Like your family gave you all these privileges. Like you don't, you don't count. But then it's like, if I'm a victim of, if I'm killed, you know, by like a fucking racist, you know, white person, then like people aren't going to see that and be like, oh, well, that's not a hate crime against Asians because that guy actually was adopted and he grew up in white, in this white family. You know what I mean? Like the people would see that and it'd be like, that's a fucking hate crime against an Asian man. You know what I mean? Like that, and that kind of made me like, that makes me think. Cause it's like, no one cares about necessarily like the nuances of how you grew up. It's like your body that matters. You know what I mean? Like, cause the world sees you as a Korean person or like an Asian American person. And so in that respect, it's like, you do count, you know, because the same way Vincent Chin you know, I think they were targeting him because they thought he was Japanese and he was actually Chinese. But like, if like someone kills me, I'm going to represent this movement. You know what I mean? And no one's going to care that I grew up with a white family because I'm, I have an Asian body and, and what it means to inhabit that body in a white dominated white supremacist society. That's what binds us together as minorities and people of color living in these like kind of imperialist, you know, nations is that experience, which we all have, no matter what, how you grew up, because it's our body, basically, you know, so like that realization really was like, holy shit, like, I do have like a really big place in this game, you know, you can't sit on the sidelines, just because you're scared that you're 
debilitated somehow by your white adjacency. You know what I mean? It's like, mm. it doesn't matter. Like if you, you're part of this movement too, just because of the way we look, you know? On the topic of your three phases, I guess two things we want to ask you about. The first is that you're considering changing your name and we're kind of interested if that's tied into that third phase. And also your um, more recent kind of mentoring roles that you've taken up yeah so the name thing i'm still like on the fence <laughs> so i can it's good to like talk through it with you guys but i think part of what i actually know that there's a specific uh, incident that happened in the last couple of months that really kind of uh, brought me to this space i was talking uh, so i work at a big corporation and there's a lot of you know obviously even with the current events like the atlanta shootings uh you know that that brought up like a big kind of internal storm of these conversations around um, Asian Americans at the company. Um, and I've been a part of a lot of them, which have been uh, some good and some bad. But one of the good conversations was just a one-on-one -on -one conversation I was having with another Asian American uh, person in the design uh, community. And, um, you know, that person is trying to gather people together and kind of like get a community going, which is amazing. And I was, you know, we had an awesome conversation. At the end, it was kind of like, oh, yeah, so we've, we like had this group going for a while now, and like I'll add you to it uh, now. It was basically like I wasn't included in that uh, to begin with because of my name. You know what I mean? Because like there, there isn't mm -hmm. a way for the corp – the corporation doesn't publish like – ethnicity data about like to the employees right like it exists but it's like it's not like easy information so like the only way for grassroots kind of communities to evolve is that you have to know the people and be like oh yeah i know that person's filipino i know that person's chinese you know but it's also like looking at the list of emails and people's names i mean you can deduce some things from people's names right and so that that just really made me feel like hey, I'm like getting left out of some of this stuff because everyone thinks I'm like a Jewish white guy, you know, <laughs> which like, you know, that's like what, if you Google my name, it's like all, all these like white dudes, right? This is true. Um, I it's also, that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and it's also like a very common name, you know, it's like not even like a unique, you know, white Jewish name. It's like a super common one. So, so that was really like a, an incidence where I was like, holy shit, like this doesn't, this doesn't really reflect who I am in a way, you know? And it's like, it would be nice to have something in that name. So like in my email or like when, if someone's Googling me or whatever, it's like, there's something in there that lets them know that I'm not white basically. And it's a question of like, how important is that to me? And I, and on your last episode that I just listened to, you guys were talking about this a little bit about how some people, like some people of color think that having a white name is an advantage, you know, because like you, you like kind of like slip through the cracks or like you, you don't get judged in the same way. But then it's like, for us, I think it's different because we're adopted and it's like, we didn't really have a choice. And then it's like, it's a total like cognitive dissonance, that whole stupid thing of when you meet someone, they're like, Oh, I didn't know you were Asian. Like, ha, 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 it's funny. You know, like that whole thing. It's like, maybe I don't have to deal with that anymore. You know, like that's, that's what's kind of going through my head. It's like, maybe mm -hmm. I can just like rectify that and just not deal with that. You know, like, and, and do it on my own. But then the other voice and the only thing that's like holding me back, which I'm sure you guys can anticipate is like, I don't know if like the, my Korean name is my real name. You know, like I don't really know 
the, I never met my birth, anyone from my birth family. So I don't know if that was like a, one of those like random, like John Doe names that they were just like giving people. Uh, I did find like my mom's name, you know, like during when I lived in Seoul, I had to like go to the clinic that I was born at. And I was like trying to talk to this woman in Korean and she like, you know, I figured it out, but then I'm also like, even that piece of information could not be real. You know what I mean? So it's like a little bit of, it's just a conundrum because it's like, it's like, how am I ever going to know? Like, what if I never know? What if I never meet those people? Will it matter? Even if that is a name that the agency gave me, does that matter? You know what I mean? Like, is it still important enough to me that like, that's the only thing that I have that represents that part of my identity and I can like own that and use that? Or is it like weird because that could be fake? You know what I mean? That's the kind of, that's the internal battle that I'm going with right now. And I think I know the answer, honestly, like even saying it out loud, it's like, it should be my choice and I should be able to own it no matter what it is. Like, even if it's not my quote unquote real name, like it's real to me because like, my fucking birth family is not real at this moment to me, you know? Mm -hmm. So I guess it's just a a matter of like uh, a personal choice, I guess. Um, I don't know. What do you guys think? (laughs) It's so hard. I don't know. I feel like a lot of the same considerations that that you just voiced. Um, I think for a while and, and maybe to a certain extent, I still feel this way that, yeah, I've, you know, my middle name's Lee because that's the name of my birth father on my file and then I found out that the agency named me you know part of me is like yeah well that's still part of my history right that I came from a place like that that I was put through a system like that and that the system gave me a name um do I want to know if it's connected to a real living human being absolutely um and then you know now having found and met my birth mother now I feel more like if I were to change my my middle name I would change it to her her last name I think um I think Hannah and I we've talked about this like maybe really briefly there's a um adoptee researcher Jason Reynolds Taewon Reynolds I think um who's published who's published an article on um adoptees and names and decisions and um yeah it's a it's a super interesting area um, I, I still don't really know how I feel. Hannah, what about you? Well, one, I think, um, I guess I feel, uh, I don't know, lucky in a sense that my, my parents kind of kept my Korean name, which is Hana. So they just kind of like anglicized it, I guess. And, you know, uh, spelt it H-A-N-A. And then I've got my Korean last name, Lee, as my middle name. Um, and then I have this like weird, obviously like, kind of, I think, weird white last name, Crisp. Um, but <laughs> I tend – so I haven't personally thought about um, changing my name, but I do think that um, – I don't think it should matter whether um, the name, the Korean name that you choose, like whether it was given just by the agency or, you know, whether, whether or whether it's actually, like, linked to your – birth parents I think um you know and I used to think that like oh that's that's like so embarrassing or something if you if you take on this name that's not like actually your name or you like get your you know Korean name tattooed and you find that it out that it's not actually your name because 
I've kind of like shifted on that because I think it's still um, kind of, as Ryan said, it's, that's, it's still part of your personal history and that's like the, the information that you have. I don't think it's actually any less meaningful um, because it's not like real or, you know, in inverted commas. Um, overall, I just think it would be really, it would be really meaningful to have this name that reflects your, um, your heritage. It's also interesting for me personally because like my wife and I are, are, are not going to have kids. So I wonder if like for other adoptees, like the name thing becomes a little bit more to the forefront if you're thinking about like which family name are you passing down. For us, we don't have to think about that really. Um, so in a way, it's almost more of a reason to do it, <laughs> you know, because it's just like, it's just about my life right now. You know, it's like, I'm not going to name anyone after me, you know. Um, so, yeah, maybe next time we talk, I'll have a different name. I don't know. Did you, what, what name you know the you? last name or? Sorry. Yeah, my, like the, my Korean name on file is Joe Namchel. I guess I would change it to Joe. Um, um, definitely wouldn't want to go by Namchel as my first name, I don't think. <laughs> I think that would be too difficult for people. Also, whenever I told anyone in Korea that that was my name, they would just start laughing because apparently that's like a super old school name. You know what I mean? Like a vintage <laughs> name, you know? So Mine was the same. It was really yeah. old timey. So yeah, no, no, thank you. <laughs> So just to um, go back <laughs> um, a little bit, do you want to tell us a bit more about your mentoring activities? Oh, yeah. That was the second part of your question. Um, yeah. So that's another. So this has been happening, I think, you know, a little bit longer than just the last three months. You know, I think it's just getting I think it's natural. Like you just get older and you start to like want to share your experiences with other, other people. So. I started to do a couple things like I did a, a cool like talk with other kind of like BIPOC younger designers, like getting, trying to get into different careers. Um, so I hooked up with an organization to do that, which was amazing. Mm. And then now at work, I am just participating in more kind of like I did a career panel the other day uh, where we were talking to all of these younger employees just about our career journeys and stuff and yeah it was awesome like I got hit up by like three four or five people afterwards and and I'm I'm just trying to be like super open and I you know I, I met with all of them after like individually and had follow-ups and especially at like a corporate place um you know part of the <laughs> one of the problems in corporate culture is just like lack of mobility for uh, people that are outside of the norm of people that climb the ladder, AKA uh, people of color. <laughs> so I just try mm. to be as, as open and um, available um, to anyone that would uh, want my advice or just want to talk or just want to share what they're going through because it's crazy how it can get. Um, I'm not sure. I don't know if you guys have ever worked in like a big corporation, but like, it starts to feel like these people who are, you know, in the leadership level, they're almost like untouchable, like they're unapproachable. You know what I mean? Because it's like, there's so many layers of stuff that's like in between you guys. And 
most traditional like American corporations are very like top down, you know, and it's, it can just feel very inaccessible. Like you won't even get a response, like an email response back because they just don't have time or like they don't, you know what I mean? Like, it's just a, not a very human um, feeling. It feels more like a machine and you're just like a little robot, you know? So me personally, it's just like, I know I'm not going to change like corporate culture <laughs> like myself, but on an individual level, I'm just trying to be as open as possible to anyone that like, wants a little bit of my time, I'm just going to try to give as much as I can um, and help them out. And like, it's been really, really a great to like, see the response, like from these, these younger people that are just like, so appreciative, so happy and surprised that like someone would take time out of their day to talk to them. So yeah, I'm just kind of like getting high on that right now. And I just feel like that's something that I want to continue to do in like phase three. Um, and then the other, on the outside of work, I'm like trying to do um, Big Brother, Big Sister, which is this program, uh, mentorship program that I've been on the waiting list for the past year. But I finally, they emailed me and I had a, a quick call with them last week. And they have like a person for me, uh, like a little brother person, but they need to, we're still like finalizing that. So I haven't like met them yet, but <clears throat> I'm hopeful that that'll, that'll come through. Um, and that can be another mentorship uh, opportunity. <clears throat> so yeah, it's just, it's been really good. It's, it's, it's definitely like a big part, I think of phase three, you know, like phase two is like super selfish in a way, you know, or at least was super selfish because I was just so, involved in like what I thought I should be doing, you know? And I think now it's like, it's just like a wider view of the world, you know? And like, yeah, you want to do stuff in your own career and in your own job, but it's like, Hey, there's like all these other people that you can help. And you, and the other part about this too, to be honest, is like, I never had any mentors, <laughs> you know, like I had, I definitely had people that I worked with that like were cool, but like, I never, I've never really had like a mentor, you know, and I've definitely never had like a, a person of color mentor mm. and definitely never had like a Korean mentor for, for example, you know? So it's like, I've had to do every single thing. I've always felt like kind of like the pioneer in a way, you know, like I'm always going into these spaces where Asian Americans aren't necessarily like always there. Like one of the jobs I had after the farm was I worked for, I worked construction uh, with Habitat for Humanity. And so I'm an Asian on a construction site. And that's like something that you don't see very much in America, to be perfectly honest. So like, that's another, you know, it's just a space that I was like inhabiting uh, and learning a lot, but it's like, it's not like I had this cool, like Korean fucking carpenter guy that I was like following in his path. Like that just doesn't exist, you know? So I think that lack of mentorship for me, I think is part of why it's like, Hey, I can like at least help some other people, <laughs> you know, that may, that may be also searching for that. <clears throat> since, since we're talking about mentorship, like, uh, like what advice would you give your, um, younger, Asian adoptee male self. That's a tough one. I'm like trying to think back to like different times in my life. Um, I think I, I think the Asian American thing, like 
what, what we were talking about that I'm kind of confronting now in um, phase three, I think I wish that I had been a little bit more open to that um, when I was younger, like even before I uh, actually basically had to have been when I left for college because I grew up in New Hampshire, which is, I just saw a statistic. It's like 95% white or something. So I saw like I didn't, there wasn't really like a big community there. But once I got to college, I, there was like, I went to school in Philadelphia and there was a lot of Asians like at college, but there was like an Asian frat and stuff like that. But I didn't go there. You know what I mean? I did do like this one weird hop. Like I was trying to learn how to break dance for a while. And I am like the, the, the dudes that ran this like club, it was like a Korean guy and an Indian guy. And the Korean guy was named Young. And I think he wanted to like, I actually looking back, I think he wanted to kind of be like a young or like, you know, like a mentor to me, but like, I wasn't there, you know, like I wasn't there yet. And I couldn't, I couldn't accept that, you know, like I just like, they would invite me to go out and do stuff. And I don't think I ever did, you know, I just, I just, I was like in my, this other world where like, honestly, like I was in the white world, you know, I was like in a band and I was like doing this other stuff. And it was just like, not part of that, like Asian, Asian community that was at my school. And I think, I feel like I missed out on something. You know what I mean? I think I, I should have been less stubborn and more brave to like, see what that is about. But I think I had this weird stigma, like, and I'm not sure this would resonate with you guys, but like, there was this weird stigma that I had in my brain that those people were like, Oh, they were, they're like, they're being exclusive or something, you know, like they're, they're like so Asian and they're like always talking about being Asian. And like, I don't want to be like that. I'm just like a American and I'm doing all these other things. It was like, it almost felt like it was too much or they were like leaning too hard on like being Asian and stuff. And I, I think I used to think that that maybe was like a bad thing, but now looking back, I'm like, that's ridiculous. Like why, like, why would that be like a negative thing to be like trying to build a community and being proud of your heritage and like, you know what I mean? Like, and having solidarity. So like, it's actually kind of embarrassing to like think back to like that, that was my mindset. It's like very privileged and very like almost like white in a way, you know what I mean? It's almost like, it's like, Oh, we're all American. Like you don't need to be like doing like making your own group. But then it's like, now I'm like, hell yeah, we need our own group. You know what I mean? Like, so I think it's just, I would have encouraged myself to, to be more open to that. But unfortunately I wasn't. (laughs) Before we move on to our final section, I wanted to ask if you feel like there's a fourth phase I mean, honestly, I'm sure there's, there's a bunch more, you know, I, I don't think that three, three seems like enough. Um, I'm not that old yet, you know, Um, but I don't know. I honestly don't know what those, I I can't really predict like what the four and five and six would be. I think you kind of have to get through three and figure out where you're at. You know, I have no idea, but I don't think it's, I don't think it's over. I mean, I think that's one of the weird things about, I mean, I guess it's identity in general, but it's also about like being an adoptee. It's like, I used to think after I got through phase two, my attitude was basically like, okay, I did that kind of like close book, like Mm. check that off the list. I like did my identity search and now I'm like free to just like move on with my life, you know? Mm. And now I'm like, 
yeah, that's not true. You know, like I think, I think we all, we're going to be struggling with our identity until we're dead, basically. You know, I think that's just like the human condition is to just always be wondering about that and who you are and why and all this stuff. So now I guess phase three, I'm just more preparing that it's going to be forever, I guess, (laughs) you know. I think it's also like the artist's condition. Um, you know, I don't know, not that not that some of us are artists and like everyone else isn't, but um, but just to be kind of constantly exploring and, and making connections and um, uh, stretching yourself in new ways. So Yeah, it's actually funny that you mentioned that. I was I wouldn't say like you introduced me as an artist. I, w- I wouldn't say I'm like an artist now, but like I did used to do art when I was younger. Um, and looking back, like, pretty much like all of the work that I ever did, like in, even in high school and in college, all about, it was always about uh, identity, you know? And I think it's funny. It's like, you kind of think like, oh yeah, I just like to do art. Right. But you know, looking back, it's like, I was only doing those things. I actually think art was just like a vehicle that was easiest for me to go to, to try to express some of the things that were like going through my head. I actually don't think it's like, I naturally was like, I want to paint, you know, I was like doing that to like, get something out and to try to like discover what was inside me. And I have this like weird art piece that I made. My mom has it at her house. I made it in high school. It's like this plaster head. <laughs> it's like a, it's a human head and it has like a mask on the front that I designed. It's like, it's, it looks like a kind of looks like a Korean mask, but it, I think it looks more like an African mask. It's like it has colors and it's like kind of this weird, thing and then there's hinges on the side and you can open the you open the door to the head and inside mm-hmm. the head it's empty except there's I put a black ball on a string on a piece of um, fishing line and there's this like little black ball that's like floating in there and that was like my art piece and I can't remember how I described it at the time but like now looking back I'm like holy shit like I was like deeply struggling with like my identity and like who I what like the mask, you know what I mean? It's like, Oh shit. Like I'm, what do I look like? Like I'm wearing a mask because I look different. And then it's like inside there, I think the black ball, I was like trying to get at this idea that like, I didn't know like who I was at the time, you know, it was like empty. It was like, I didn't know what was in there to fill it up with. All I knew is I had this mask and then it was like empty but like, I don't even think I could have articulated that at the time. I can't even remember what I wrote in terms of the description, but like thinking back now, it's like kind of powerful, you know, that it's just like, I was thinking on that level, like subconsciously, like through this art, you know? And I I do think like maybe in the future, maybe one of the future phases is like, I can pick that back up again, you know, like, you know, have more of a creative Mm. output that's not for like a huge corporation like I'm doing now. Um, so maybe that's in the future, uh, but it's always a rich area to mine, you know, <laughs> there's so much stuff. Yeah, yeah. Like, so much stuff. Yeah. Wow. That's quite uh, haunting. That image of like the little black ball inside, like on a, a little fishing <laughs> line. It, it's yeah, very it's like, like um, fragile, right? Yeah. Like it's kind of just like dangling there on the, And it's empty. I mean, that's what like, that's what's like super haunting to think about it is like, you have this big exterior that's like really showy and it was like really colorful. And then you like open this door and it's like, there's nothing in there. You know, it's like, it is, it's like fucking haunting. Yeah. Or the, yeah. You just, you don't know who you, 
like really are inside you. <laughs> yeah, so weird. Mm. <laughs> I also kind of love that your mom's like this one, this one. I'm gonna keep this one and have it in my, on display. Oh, no, she, she has like a bunch of yeah. No, <laughs> she has a bunch of like weird artworks like around. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, I did a lot of weird, uh, I did a lot of weird art like this. I'll just talk about one other one is I made this huge um, collage of, and like when you stand back and look at it, it looks like a, it looks like a Korean woman. And I think it was like, I, I think I took a photo of someone when I was in Korea and I just used her as the model. The way I made the portrait is I had all of the, you know, remember like we used to like, you used to like print uh, out your photos, like on a, from a disposable camera, like, you know, like when you're in high school or something, like there wasn't digital, at least for me, there wasn't like digital cameras. So I had all these like photos of me and my friends, like just being stupid in high school, like partying and stuff like that. And I made the portrait of this Korean woman by ripping up all of these old photos that I had from my life growing up. And I collaged them to make the face of this woman. You know what I mean? And so obviously I was like melding, like, you know, I was like making this image of kind of like my birth mom or something. And I was making this image with all of these like relics of this like white childhood. You know what I mean? Like this, Whoa. it was like all white people. You know what I mean? It's like all my friends and like all like growing up and just like playing with super soakers and stuff like that. And it's like making this image of this like Korean woman and my mom has it hanging like in the half in her house, like super big. And I always see it when we go home and I'm like, what is that? <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's weird. <laughs> um, so I think, yeah, we just wanted to end by asking you, Oh, that's like a Sorry. nice egg. I opened a window. I should probably close that. actually. <laughs> Neighbors have like super annoying dogs, actually. So, oh, so that wasn't your dog? No, 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 oh, no. Okay. Poncho doesn't bark like that. No way. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, yeah, through through good old fashioned internet stalking, we found your dog Poncho's fundraising page, and there we also learned that your wife is also an adoptee who was domestically adopted within the U.S. Well, wondering if, um, yeah, if you could tell us about your, like, little, like, family of adopted people <laughs> and creatures. <laughs> yeah, I and mean, we just kind of realized, yeah, when we, we adopted our dog last March, Poncho, and, yeah, we just, I don't know when we, like, kind of talked about it, but we were just like, holy shit, like, we have this cool little family of three creatures that have all been adopted and now we have our own, we've made our own family. Um, cause my wife was adopted domestically in the States. Um, yeah, it's, it's cool. It's like a cool little thing that we have. I, I wouldn't say that like, you know, my wife and I didn't, it's not like we like talked about that a lot, <laughs> you know, like when we were like, like getting together or whatever, I think it's just turned, it's kind of like just this kind of like happy coincidence. And, but it is interesting thinking about it though. Like, in the context of us, like, you know, not having kids and just like moving, looking to the future with our life. It's like this very, I feel it's like a very unique existence because, you know, a lot of people struggle with like, 
okay, I got like my, my kid, you know, other, I hear other adoptees talk about like, oh, when I had kids, then I was like, oh man, like I have to like unpack all of this stuff about my heritage because I need to pass this down to my kids because they're going to have my genes and they're going to be Korean, you know? And it's like, we're not going to have that. We're also not going to have the traditional thing of like, oh, I'm just passing down the family name. Like I come from generations of Smiths and, you know, like, you know, like that whole thing, like, you know, we're effectively ending <laughs> the line, you know, like, uh, you know, both of us have brother and sister. So like they may have kids or whatever, but, you know, Kaplan, for example, that was my dad's name. It's like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not passing that down to anyone. You know, <laughs> it's like kind of this weird, our generation is just like a, it's like its own thing, you know, in the context of like a larger picture, we don't, we're like our, our own little isolated bubble that isn't attached to anything else. If you're like visualizing a family tree, it's like, literally, it's like just us <laughs> on the map, you know, so it is kind of a weird type of existence. And, you know, I don't know any other way. So I'm not sure how it feels to like not be like this. But um, that's also why like the mentorship stuff is has been coming up for me, you know, because it's like, I can still affect people's lives in a good way you know not just by having a shit ton of kids you know what i mean <laughs> you know which almost feels like the default honestly you know with a lot of people it's just like all right i'm 30 I'm gonna have kids now and that's my life for the next 20 years you know um so yeah i think we'll have a little bit more freedom to really think about what we want to do and how we want to spend our time other than um hanging out with our dog which we do basically all the time <laughs> <laughs> With your wife, uh, I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about, like, in what ways you connect as a, as adoptees, and and also in what ways um, you you don't. Yeah. So, yeah, she doesn't really like. Whenever we talk about it, it's more like she's completely fine, just like not really knowing. Like, she's not really curious about her birth family or anything, you know. And so even she's completely happy just like with her <clears throat> adopted family, which is awesome, you know, and me, obviously, you know, I did a, a kind of birth search when I was there. Um, and I still am curious. And if I had the opportunity somehow to meet them, I think I would. So yeah, that's definitely like a very big difference, you know, but it's also like my sister, for example, is also a Korean adoptee. She doesn't really express that much interest either which is also fine you know it's like it's like it's not really good or bad it's just like sometimes people are curious and sometimes people aren't which is which is fine you know I, I wonder sometimes what my life would have been like if I just wasn't really curious about it you know it's like I probably wouldn't have lived in that crappy warehouse with no bathroom and had all of those bad experiences <laughs> you know <laughs> um but it's just different and I and I I think the transracial thing is like something that it's, it's hard not to like think about that when I'm, when I'm thinking about why or the context around like why sh my wife might feel some one way and I might feel different, you know, it's just like, there's like some type of like innate human thing of like looking at yourself in the mirror and like wanting to know where you came from, like even like your origins, like biologically, that it's just hard to escape when you're, looking in a mirror and you look totally different than everyone else that's in your family. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much, Ben. We have some quick random -y questions. They're going to start easy and then 
get progressively harder, I think. Oh, uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay, so the first one's really simple. Um, what kind of music are you into? You said um, you played in a band. Oh, yeah, uh, the band was like an alternative rock band, and then I was in like a punk band when I was in high school. But I think nowadays I'm definitely listening to more like hip hop and you know, kind of whatever Spotify is telling me to listen to. <laughs> what did you play in your band? I was the drummer. Oh, mm. that was always like the coveted position for me. Like I always wanted to be a drummer because they're cool. Yeah, I mean. Yeah, they are like so the coolest part of the band for sure. Yeah, I guess it was funny like thinking back to that too because you know thinking talking about like stereotypes and you know we would always joke that I was like the mysterious Asian drummer you know because like it was like all these white guy I'm in this like white guy band and then there's like this random Asian drummer guy so I don't know I don't know if that's bad or good but that was just what we said at the time. Okay, next. Um, if you had a second life, what would you want to do in like rather than being like an artist or um, in design? Man, second life, um, maybe like doing like the the farm thing would be cool. I mean, I already did that, but like you know, like actually like living that would be cool. And I guess the other the other thing that comes to mind is like actually being more of like an entrepreneur, you know, and this sounds like I don't think I've ever uttered these words in my entire life. So it's like very <laughs> weird that I'm saying this right now. And it's probably just because I'm getting older and changing and, you know, I'm in phase three or whatever, but like the idea, you know, the uniqueness of like actually live one of the, actually the few like good things about like America, I guess, is like the, there is the, the opportunities to like really like create something like brand new and like, and, and, and have that be a real thing that you can do. And I think I'm more of like a visual creative now, you know, it's kind of the field that I'm in, but like, I think entrepreneurship and like seeing solving problems for society and like a business and kind of idea sense is like another type of creativity that I feel that kind of hits some of the same parts of your brain, you know? Um, So that's something I've been more curious about, you know, not like a businessman, but more like a, more like an inventor or like, you know, like someone that's like solving problems and like taking risks and, and launching failed experiments and then doing another one, you know, like that kind of thing, which I'm totally not doing now. I'm like, I play it very safe and I'm like just working for this, this company. So um, that's why I would have to be another life. Okay. Who is your favorite superhero and why? First thing that's coming to my brain is Wolverine. And I don't know. I don't really have a good, I don't really have a good reason for that, but I just think he's badass, and you know, I love, I love that character, and just the movies and stuff is so dramatic. I'm trying to think of some, maybe there's a reason in my subconscious that it picked that, but maybe that's like tapping into like the aggressive side of me that I don't really have. You know, I'm like not actually not very aggressive, but like I think like that type of character that's just like gonna fucking like rip you apart, like. I don't know. Maybe I think that's cool because like, I'm totally not like that, you know? <laughs> so. I think there are also like parallels to like, you know, I mean, it wasn't his choice to have like his whole body transformed in that way. Right. Yeah. And now, and then it's like, it's become like both this like powerful weapon that can be used for good, but also like this real liability in like um, even having intimate relationships with people. Right. <laughs> that's like my adoptee like psychoanalysis of wolverine like <laughs> uh, no i see what you're talking about like when he like when he like 
pulls his like claws out, like it hurts, right? Like it's like it hurts him a little bit, but that's like what gives him the power, you know. Uh. Next question. This is a very me kind of question. Um, if you had to eat one type of cuisine for the rest of your life, what would it be? I think Korean food. The thing is, is like that would be hard for me to do in my regular life because I don't really know how to make it. But like when I live there, it's like how could you not want to eat that every day? I'd probably be way healthier actually because of like all the vegetables and stuff. Do you identify with your Western or Chinese zodiac sign, and why or why not? Libra is my Western sign. Yes, I totally identify with that. My my wife is super into that stuff, and we talk about that a lot. And Libras are like, <laughs> they're you know the the symbol is the scale, so it's like all about balance, and you're always like looking for the right balance in all areas of your life. And we're indecisive, um, but we're also very like good at like listening and kind of like seeing all sides of like an equation. You know what I mean? But we also are kind of tortured in that like always trying to figure out like the right balance of things, which is definitely has been my experience. <laughs> so yes, I definitely identify with that. Okay. Final question. Who do you think Pancho truly loves more? You or your wife? <laughs> That's a totally unfair question um, <laughs> because he definitely loves, he loves both of us equally for sure. But yeah, we have different roles in his life for sure that we talk about. Like I've, I'm more of like the trainer <laughs> because I've been like training him and stuff. So I'm more of like that guy. And then um, my wife is like the cuddler, you know? So like, he always like goes up, goes up to her to cuddle all the time. Uh, but yeah, no, he loves us both. He, he has the best life. He really lucked out. He doesn't know it, but he lucked out for sure. <laughs> I love how you provided a very balanced lead. Yes. Very balanced. Yeah. Very diplomatic. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much, Ben. I think, um, yeah, as as we talked about, you are the first, like, kind random. of completely unknown random guest that we've had on the podcast. But it's worked out super well. <laughs> and we're so glad that you reached out. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Adopted Feels Podcast. We're on Twitter at Adopted Feels. If you like what you hear, please give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. 